Faith in humanity restored. Faith in humanity restored. It's a catchphrase of the internet we're likely all familiar with. It's probably amongst the comments on most videos you see depicting some surprising act of generosity. As humans, we are drawn to that kind of story. Uh, The media knows this. News outlets love a heartwarming human interest angle to end their six o'clock newscast. Oprah and Ellen, they capitalized on this to make their talk shows go viral online. More recently, dozens of YouTubers have capitalized on this very similarly. They hand out life-changing cash to downtrodden people and they get millions, hundreds of millions of views. But there's a common thread to particularly those videos, those stories that go really viral and it's this the recipient of the generosity generally possesses something in their character something in their background to provoke our sympathy they are an overlooked good samaritan a selfless hard worker a victim of some grievous crime or natural disaster behind in life simply due to how they were brought up an unfortunate childhood in other words while the good work that is shown to them seems very surprising and over the top, it doesn't feel entirely undeserved. We can chalk it up, I think more or less, society does this to good karma. And this only, I think, becomes more clear, this sort of general theme, general trend, when we think about how we might respond if the subject of that video was different. We might groan a little if it was our jerk of a coworker being featured on the 6 p.m. news, our that annoying neighbor, or the friend, even, who gets all the breaks, even though they don't quite need the help like I do. All that to say, there is a limit to the human draw to those kind of stories. It depends on some degree to the object of the virtuous action. At some point, we perceive an act of generosity, an act of kindness, an act of mercy as either being unfair, naive, or even just downright misdirected. We all draw that line in a different place, but I think we all draw it. Contrast that now as we turn to Titus 3 with God's mercy. Today we're looking at the close of Paul's instructions to his co-laborer in the gospel. That's Titus. I'll read chapter 3 now, starting in verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But... When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once. Warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with us all. Well, I'd just like to begin this morning by simply drawing your attention to the logic of this chapter, the how it flows together because it closely mirrors what we already saw last week in chapter 2. You can see this at the top of your bullets and outlines. Uh, recall how we saw that Paul's gospel presentation in chapter 2, 11 through 14, that formed the basis for his instructions for Christian living in verses 2 to 10 of chapter 2. And the link between those two things was the teaching in verses 1 and in verses 15. So the gospel of verses 11 to 14 must be taught, it must be verbally spoken, preached to produce the results of verses 2 to 10. That same formula is in play again here in chapter 3. Paul begins with some further instructions for Christian living in verses 1 and 2. He adds some more in 9 to 15. But in between, in verses 3 to 7, he lays out the gospel basis for living in this way. And again, verse 8 is the critical teaching link between those things. Thus, we can say in chapter 3, much like chapter 2, the results of the gospel emerge from the teaching of the substance of the gospel. So we need to ask then, is Paul simply repeating himself here in chapter 3? No, I don't think that's entirely the case. Paul is shifting his focus slightly here. Last week was all about life in the church, how members of a local church relate to one another, how they go towards one another. Doing that well will be compelling to the world. But how we related to unbelievers was not a focus of chapter 2. And that is what Paul turns to here in chapter 3. You can see that in the big picture there in your bulletins of chapter 3. God's mercy in the gospel shapes how Christians relate to a sinful world and how they relate to unrepentant worldly sinners in the church. We'll look first together at God's mercy, which again forms this basis in verses 3 to 7 before turning to how that informs the way we should live toward three different groups as Christians. So point number one, God's mercy in the gospel. Look at verse three with me. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And those verses should very much remind us of chapter 2, verse 11, when Paul said, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. 
Paul is laying the same kind of gospel groundwork in each chapter. But did you notice that subtle difference? There's a subtle difference in emphasis in how he puts forward the gospel in these chapters. The grace of God in salvation in chapter 2 takes the primary focus. And chapter 3, it is the mercy of God in salvation. We sometimes use those interchangeably, don't we? I think we can kind of use them as perfect synonyms. They're, they're different. There's a different meaning to them. I think one of the best ways to differentiate them is to think of mercy as a subset of grace. Mercy is deliverance from just judgment. We are under a sentence that we deserve, but it has not been carried out. That is mercy. And so there is a sense in which that is also grace. It is an undeserved gift. But grace includes much more, doesn't it? It's a broader term. It means unmerited favor, the extending of blessing to the unworthy. Hebrews 4.16, I think it really makes this clear for us. It demonstrates this relationship. It says this, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. So God's throne is this picture here. This is grace is flowing from him. That we may obtain mercy and find grace. So there's gifts of grace and mercy coming from the throne of grace. Mercy is this subset of grace, one of the gifts of God to his people. So why this shift, this almost narrowing of focus in chapter 3 for Paul? We saw last week that message of chapter 2 was essentially teach the Christians in Crete about the grace of God. They've been given so much, therefore give to one another as you have been given. Look at your lives as not being your own in the church, but for the good of those God has brought near to you and also saved by his grace. This week in chapter 3, Paul is putting the emphasis on what we have been saved from, as opposed to, or at least primary, secondary to what we've been saved to. And this makes sense as we turn to how the gospel should shape our posture towards those outside of God's people. We need to remember, we are no better than any other sinner. That is the important thing about relating to all people outside of God's chosen people. Mercy is all that separates us. Verse 3, at one time we too, that is Christians too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Brother, sister, have you forgotten who you are apart from Christ? That's what Paul is trying to correct here. We must never forget it. Don't dwell on that per se in exclusion of all other gospel gifts. Tim Keller says it well. He says, for every one look at your sin, take five looks at Jesus. But do look. Look at your sin. Why? Because it will magnify our appreciation for the mercy of Christ and give us a Christ-like posture toward those who have not, to this point, received it. Brothers and sisters, Romans 3.10 provides for us the blunt assessment of who we are, all of us, as humans. Paul pulls together essentially a series of Old Testament scriptures in that section of Romans 3, and he paints a bleak but true and honest picture of mankind. It says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is not a hyperbole, that is reality. It is the direct result of Adam's sin in Genesis 3 for all of us. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death comes to all people. In Adam, we are all condemned. Everyone in this room, everyone on the street. The great King David, one of the most righteous men to ever live. If you think you can... Avoid this assessment of yourself. You will not find yourself more righteous than David. He says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And in this way, every man and woman on the face of this earth now and to ever walk it is united in that fact. You'll often hear me say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We like to say that here at New City as a corrective for being too puffed up as in our spiritual pride. But here's another way to put it. The ground is also level east of Eden, essentially outside the Garden of Eden. The sentence hanging over my head, the sentence hanging over the head of Adam are one and the same. It's the same sentence hanging over the worst dictator you can imagine. The temptation in all of us is to suppress that reality. Christians and non-Christians alike, it is to believe I'm not that bad. And I'm guessing probably there's some of you here thinking that very thing as I was saying all that. I'm not that bad. That is a bit too far. But that simply is not the biblical picture. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. I think most of our struggle to come to grips with that reality, it comes down to what we think sin is. Sin is not at its core oppression or extreme violence or sexual perversion. Sin at its core is idolatry. It is setting ourselves up as God and pursuing to our heart's content whatever we desire. Doing right in our own eyes. And that outlook, that describes every member of New City Baptist Church at one point in their life. If not, for what? The mercy of God in the cross of Christ. Otherwise, it would still describe it. As our text says, it's a life following after the passions and pleasures of our hearts. Now, that sounds a little better, doesn't it? It's accurate, I think, if we're honest with ourselves. Perhaps a more accurate assessment of your worldview if you're not a Christian. This is the wisdom of the world, after all. Discover your authentic self. Follow your heart. Live, laugh, love. That's wisdom to the world. That is utter foolishness in the sight of a creator who calls his creatures, you and me, into a life far greater. A life for which he made us to worship and to enjoy him forever. Now, friend, please don't misunderstand me here. I speak to you today not as some guru with mind awakened to a spiritual reality, but as a beggar And this is what all the members of this church are, beggars who by the mercy of God were given bread. And I'm simply pointing you, we're simply pointing you, likewise, 
a beggar to a place where you can find that mercy. That place, that person, is Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the one who, in the kindness and love of God, appeared and saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Friend, you could be saved from the life of verse 3. You can be. A life oriented around your own sin-tainted heart, which may give you fleeting fulfillment right now. It may feel really great temporarily, but it's at the cost of eternal life. And brothers and sisters, this is the mercy we must keep in view as we engage with the world, speaking to Christians now, as we engage with the world that shares our sentence. We did not save ourselves. We could never have reestablished a right relationship with a holy God by good works. One sin severed that hope. Our very flesh in Adam severs that hope. We simply received mercy. And that rules out really any kind of arrogance, any kind of standoffishness or coldness toward the world. And while Paul's emphasis here is on mercy in verses 3 to 7 as he presents the gospel, he also lays out several further gospel truths that flow from this that only drive further, drive all of us further toward humility and love in our approach to other sinners. First one is this, the essential nature of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Look at verse 5b, he, that is God the Father, this is a great Trinitarian verse, saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. These verses show us the Spirit is both the first actor in our salvation and the power from which all our good works emerge thereafter. Point six of our own church's statement of faith actually summarized this very well. It says this, Although God commands people everywhere to repent, such is the power of sin that people will not of themselves obey this command. Therefore, God, determining to save those for whom Christ died, draws them by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who renews their minds, hearts, and wills so that they freely trust in Christ. The work of rebirth, the work of renewal of the Spirit, they're closely related, they're inseparable, really, ideas. This comes out most clearly in a very famous biblical passage, John 3, and Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. He says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And when Jesus said that, Nicodemus would have instantly picked it up. It's the imagery of Ezekiel 37. I, that is God speaking here in Ezekiel, will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. To be truly saved, to be born again, is to be both cleansed of impurity, that is the rebirth word here in Titus 3, the water imagery in Ezekiel, and enabled to follow God's commands. Renewal, Titus 3, Ezekiel's spirit imagery, and those operations are inseparable. It's really two phases of one work. Both occur when the Holy Spirit is poured out on us generously, as our text says. And that's as we come to saving faith. 
in the gospel. This reality only serves as a further reminder, again, of our utter dependence upon God for anything good. It is flowing from the Spirit. Verse 7 points out two more gifts of grace to the believer, which we only have time to note very briefly today. And Paul really does this as well. He brings up justification by grace alone, doesn't he? He says, we've been justified by his grace. And he moves on. That's a huge theological concept. Paul spends two basically entire books on it in Romans and Galatians. He presents it merely here in passing. But what he means is that by faith in Christ, Christians have been declared righteous in God's sight, despite our sin. That is what he means. Our verdict is now not guilty in the courtroom of heaven, not because God overlooked our sin or we somehow overcame it, but because Christ's righteousness is now ours by faith. We stand in him, so his verdict is now our verdict. This is just further fuel to approach the world humbly, isn't it? We consider the undeserved reversal in the courtroom of heaven. Finally, there is our adoption and the certain hope it secures. Adoption isn't right there in the text, but when Paul says we are heirs, that's the theological concept that he has in mind, adoption. Christians have God as father. We have Christ as our older brother. By saving spirit-gifted faith, we have coming to us Christ's inheritance, which is life eternal, a body incorruptible. And so this hope here in verse 7 that we see is not a wishful thought. That's not what hope means here. It's, not, it's really not used that way in the Bible in general, but it is a grounded assurance. One commentator writes this, the assurance of a secure spiritual inheritance that's the result of divine adoption should empower Titus and the Cretan believers to trust God for their future in the face of a discouraging social situation in Crete. And so Paul leads with God's mercy, but he also highlights the Spirit's work justification by grace, our hope of eternal life, as further gospel groundwork for his admonitions that take up the rest of the chapter here in verses 1 and 2 and 9 to 15. So let's look at them now. Let's look at point number two today, the gospel's impact on how Christians relate to unbelievers outside the church. Look at verse 8 first before we go actually to first one. Verse 8. I mentioned earlier this is that teaching link of chapter 3, where Titus is commanded to teach 3 to 7 so that the other things flow from it. Verse 8 says this, this is a trustworthy saying, and Paul says that he means what has just gone on in verses 3 to 7. I want you, Titus, to stress these things, so stress the gospel, stress the mercy of God, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for the church. No, everyone, Paul says, everyone. The gospel is excellent and profitable for everyone. And we need to ask why. It seems like it's only really for us as Christians. There's two reasons for it. Of course, there's the just simple fact that the gospel, insofar as you are alive, it is good news for you. If you yet breathe, it is a branch of hope held out to those dead in their sin. But secondly, this is probably more what Paul means here in verse 8 about it being good for everyone. The good works that the gospel produces in Christians benefit those around them. Everyone, not just other Christians. So look at verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, 
and always to be gentle toward everyone. It is a great thing for governments to have godly Christians as citizens, and it is a great thing for unbelievers to have godly Christians as neighbors, because these are the kind of attitudes and actions we will be displaying if it is indeed the gospel of verses 3 to 7 that we are believing. So let's look at what Paul highlights here in these two verses. There are really two contexts in view. The first, the Christian as a citizen, under those rules, rulers and authorities, to the beginning of verse 1, and then by the end of verse 2, we see the Christian as a neighbor to everyone. The transition is a little unclean. There's a bit of a murky transition there. Is Paul moving from one to the other at the end of verse 1? It's, I think there's some overlap. We're going to look at, to be slander, the prohibition of slandering. That's likely with both in view. There's a transition in there somewhere, but really all of them are applicable in both to some degree, but certainly those first two uh, apply directly to government, don't they? The overarching thing, though, that we need to remember in this passage that Paul is doing here is he's setting up a contrast. It's a contrast to the false teachers back in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. This is very clear. Uh, compare these two passages. So put your thumb in, ver- in chapter 1, 10 to 16, and have it in Titus 3, 1 to 2. We see Christians are to be subject to proper authorities and obedient, but the Cretan false teachers are disobedient and rebellious. Christians are ready to do whatever is good. The false teachers are unfit for anything good. Christians are not slanderers. False teachers are full of meaningless talk. Christians are gentle, peaceable, considerate. The false teachers are compared to evil brutes who disrupt whole households. So we need to ask, how does this play out toward government? Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient Notice how Paul uses the word remind there. He doesn't say teach like he's been saying in chapter 2, remind. This, I think, indicates, underscores, this was well-known teaching by this point in the first century church. It was not just Crete-specific, though this posture may have been more against the grain in Crete. Crete had that reputation. But let me just begin our study here before we go into verse 1 by simply reading three other texts the New Testament puts forward about a Christian's relation to government. We just read verse 1 of Titus 3. Now hear these three texts. See if you can see a united front here. Submit yourselves, 1 Peter 2.13, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Romans 13 Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Friends, to me, it seems to me the Bible is actually quite clear on this front. Whether we like it or not, whether our leaders are wise or not, whether they are pagan or Christian, the general Christian posture toward those in authority is one of obedience, it is one of prayerful support, and it is an unwavering recognition that God has established those authorities. 
Now, this has obviously been a hot topic, hasn't it, over the past three years? This was really brought to bear uh, with COVID-19. Uh, at this point, let me just commend to you a Sunday school that we put out there in June of 2020 called COVID-19 and the Overlapping Authority of the Church and the State. If you want 45 minutes on that topic, on our position here at New City, I direct you in that direction. Let me just summarize a little bit of what we believe about this and what emerges from this text in particular. The central role of government, as the Bible puts it forward, is to protect life, wielding what Romans 13 calls the power of the sword. This was first granted back in the Noahic Covenant with the demand for a life for a life in Genesis 9 and God's recreation. Governments render punishments against evildoers to enable peace, order and prosperity in a sinful world do they do that perfectly of course not sinners occupy government however god's common grace still extends through governments through those in authority and in some places and sometimes better than others this common grace platform of government serves the special grace purposes of the church. One way to think very practically about this, no one can be saved if they're dead. That's really what it comes down to in a lot of ways. The government's work allows people to live physically. It should anyway. Obviously it can be corrupted. To hear the word of life spiritually from the church. In a way, government is God's way of delivering sinners from themselves. If only for a short while. It delays the sentence. In this way, we could say it is God's mercy towards sinners in restraining what their evil could become. A quick look at a history book will show us that where government is absent or where it is extremely corrupted or where it is just weak, evil increases and spirals out of control at a much more rapid rate. But where it is strong and where it is relatively, sinners being in view, just, human life flourishes. This is why the current posture of a wide swath, sadly, of even our own very close circles here in this city, in this country, and in the United States, that the whole idea of government, the whole idea of it, not just a particular person in government, the whole idea is really anti-Christ. It is hopelessly wrong. It is, there's nothing good in it. Now, I'm not naive. Many of the policies of our current government here I deeply disagree with. It's also true, we must obey God rather than man when government does overstep its authority. There are days I wonder if I will end my own ministry staring at the inside of a prison cell in this country. But the result, that result, if that happens, wouldn't change my responsibility toward government as a Christian. It doesn't change it. They've still been established by God. Let's not forget Paul was writing this letter when the notoriously corrupt and Christian-hating Nero was emperor of Rome. That's when he's writing this letter. It might even have been in AD 64, which was the year of the great fire in Rome. It's around the same time as this letter is written, a fire for which Nero unfoundedly assigned blame to Christians and murdered hundreds of them. Paul knew his job as a Christian. My job as a Christian, your job as a Christian, was not to be known, not to be marked out as a rebel or a political dissident, always railing against what God has established for purposes that God only knows. Instead, it is to be obedient, ready to do what is good. 
And that last phrase seems to carry the sense of just a general readiness for societal good. To work positively with government toward a flourishing society. That, would, that should be the default position of a Christian. Romans 13.3, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. We are not bowing to Baal if we work alongside a secular government, even one we disagree with on a number of policies. Do good. Help maintain peace and order. Pay taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Help your community flourish. Be ready to do good. Slandering no one comes into play here as well, doesn't it? It appears to be this transition from government into just everyone in general. Paul likely has both in view, certainly for this one. Slander toward government. This is an increasingly acceptable sin, isn't it? In our own circles. Brother, sister, hear me. Don't spoil your Christian witness by spreading slander, be it online or in person, because make no mistake, that's what it does. To call our prime minister a foul name, to assign to him a motive you don't know to be true is sin, and it is an exceedingly poor Christian witness. In fact, it might even be a stumbling block for a friend you might otherwise have had an opportunity to witness to. I'm not saying we need to be fanboys of the current government in power. Not at all. You can be critical, but be charitable. Be considerate. Be gentle, as we'll see in a moment. Brother, sister, whether it is government or neighbor, to slander someone is to cut down an image bearer of God, one who, like you, stands on the level ground east of Eden. That's where Justin Trudeau stands. He stands there with me. It is incompatible with God's immeasurable, undeserved mercy shown toward us in Jesus Christ. Let's turn fully now to the Christian posture toward non-Christian neighbors. Verse 2, to be peaceable and considerate, always to be gentle toward everyone. Brothers and sisters, the kind mercy of God in Christ calls us to this posture toward all who are lost in their sin. Recall again verse 4. Of chapter 3 here. When the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us. God's love, as Jeremy read for us, is demonstrated for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the same way, we aim to show this cruciform, cross-shaped love toward those who are still lost in their sin. A couple of word studies here on some of these words that might help us. The word for peaceable that Paul uses here, that's actually the same as the elder qualification in 1 Timothy 3, to be not quarrelsome, but a peacemaker. Again, this is an easy temptation. While we are at odds, very much at odds, with a non-Christian on our whole worldviews, we shouldn't go looking for a fight as we interact with them. I'm not advocating for squishy postmodern tolerance, but rather an attitude that takes where possible the, the best. In those we're talking through. Keeping temperatures cool doesn't assume the, assume the worst of every sentence to come out of an unbeliever's mouth. It's really easy to do that. And the word for gentle here is also used in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done 
in the humility, it's the same word there, gentle, in the humility that comes from wisdom. Again, Christians, mature Christians are not pushovers, far from it. We take firm stands for Christ. But a defining characteristic of Christ, and therefore his people, is humble self-denial. One commentator writes here, A Christian is to display the quality of not being overly taken by a sense of their own importance. There should, be, there should not be a whiff of arrogance or cockiness in our interactions with unbelievers. Why? Because God's mercy rules it out. It is ridiculous to be cocky. When God needed to send his own son to deliver us from death, to wash us of our sin, and to clothe us in his righteousness. And this brings us to point number three. The gospel's impact on how Christians relate to unbelievers inside the church. And yes, there is a difference. And no, that's not inconsistent. That's why I had Jeremy read for us 1 Corinthians 5 a little bit earlier. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked wicked person from among you. Christians do have a job to do in the church. They don't have outside of it. It has been given to us by Jesus. It is the good work of church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Both those texts, that Matthew 18 one and 1 Corinthians 5 that Jeremy read for us, they provide that useful background here for a much shorter set of instructions in Titus 3, 9-11. Let's read these verses now. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once. Warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Paul first contrasts the gospel, which he calls excellent, of course, and profitable in verse 8, with these foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. It's it's clearly pointing back again to chapter 1 with what he assigns the false teachers back in chapter 1. There, Paul commanded Titus to silence them and to rebuke them sharply. And here in chapter 3, we're kind of given a closer look at how that actually plays out in the corporate context of the church. Now, there are two warnings mentioned here in verse 10. If you're trying to align that with Matthew 18, I think it's fairly safe to say those are akin to stage 2 and 3 of the Matthew 18 process, so kind of the ones involving more than one person, public element to it. If they still refuse to repent of their divisive ways after the warnings, the church is to, in this chapter, nothing more to do with them. What does that mean? Does that mean we totally shut, lock the doors, put a restraining order out on them? No, they are to be removed from formal association with the church. In particular, the church is no longer to affirm their faulty profession of Christ before the nations. They have disproved it by their unrepentant actions. 
Back in Titus 2.14, we saw Jesus redeemed us to purify for himself a people, that's the church, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The church is Christ's very own. Our actions toward one another reflect that reality. But the actions of these so-called Christians in chapter 3, they fly in the face of that. Removing them is necessary to protect the reputation of Jesus to the nations. But wait, how is that merciful? Isn't that sort of flying in face of what I just said throughout the whole sermon up to this point? Is there a double standard here? Consider Matthew 7, 21. Here was Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, it's the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. To allow unrepentant sinners to continue in the church is to passively assign them to that fate. The merciful action toward these people is not to allow them to continue assuming they have been shown mercy, if in fact they have not. Church discipline is merciful, and its goal is restoration. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, an unrepentant sinner is to be delivered over to Satan. That's what Paul says there. That is, he's put out of this special realm of Christ, the church, into the realm of Satan, which is mediated under the overall sovereignty of God and is coming to an end, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That was the purpose of it in that 1 Corinthians 5 passage. The purpose of church discipline is never of petty revenge or vindication. It is designed to wake up a sinner to the consequences of their sin. Think of the final ghost in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. If you aren't familiar, Scrooge, of course, he's visited by three phantoms. The last of them shows what happens, what will happen if he continues in his miserly ways. And it's a bleak picture. We see the death of Tiny Tim. We see no one to comfort Scrooge on his deathbed. We see that he is generally just despised and forgotten by all people. And finally, the ghost takes him to a cemetery and he points at a gravestone. And Scrooge cries out, Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, Spirit, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? And the ghost keeps pointing down, and Scrooge says, Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. And then he wakes up in his bed. He's a changed man. And this demonstrates to us the goal of church discipline. It is a mere foreshadowing. The church has no power to assign to hell. But by God's grace, she is a prophetic voice of what is to come. Church discipline is indeed a mercy of God toward one who is self-deceived in their sin. New City, local churches exist in part to protect us from ourselves. We all can so easily be blinded by our sin. Church discipline calls the one who is self-condemned to true repentance and merciful deliverance from the judgment that they remain under. 
I'll just make one more comment here in regard to the type of sin that is in view in Titus 3 that comes under church discipline. What kind of sin would you think warrants someone being removed from the membership of a church? I think we all kind of tend towards a massive moral failure of some kind, an extreme act of violence, perverse sexual immorality. The sin in view here in Titus 3 is something different. The sin that comes under discipline is a divisive spirit and unrepentant quarrelsomeness over peripheral doctrines. Paul is certainly not saying in doing this that every question about the Mosaic law or a genealogy is a waste of time. In fact, he himself has elsewhere discussed that in books of scripture. As Don Carson says, one begins to suspect that those who are stirring up this strife have invested so much of their own egos in their eccentric positions, they can neither be corrected nor can they back down. The sin at hand is one of elevating a tertiary doctrine or even less than that over and against love for brothers and sisters. We need to beware the sneaky sin of Christian tribalism. It's a very soft phrase. I think what we see here in Titus 3 is essentially Christian tribalism fully grown. So what is this? How do we beware of it? A helpful article by Pastor Joe Joseph points out three warning signs. He says, only seeing wrong out there and not in here. Our good desire for a unified network and inner circle of friends as Christians is soon corrupted when we're quick to caricature everything that is out there in the Christian world and exaggerate those wrongs while minimizing our own, not seeing our own. Second, lack of grace and patience. As Christians, we often bemoan cancel culture, don't we? We love to do that. But we also tend to internally dismiss other Christians before personally and patiently engaging with them. We have to fight that tendency. Number three, making good things into ultimate things. There are many good and godly causes out there for us to pursue. Maybe these leaders in Titus 3 had some. But there is only one thing that is the ultimate thing, and that is the gospel. Let's put this in the new city context. Let's bring it very practically home here. Church membership. We love talking about church membership, don't we, at New City? We believe it's a very good thing. I went to Mark Dever's church for five months. We believe it even points to, and it serves the ultimate thing. But brothers and sisters, church membership is not the ultimate thing. Ask ourselves, are we turning the benefits and implications of the gospel into our ultimate cause? We're on our way to our ultimate lasting home. Soon we'll be in an eternal city with brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and people and nation. Until we're home, let's fight our tendency to divide from those with whom we will one day unite, all while still holding to scriptural convictions that we have. That is possible. Our final point, and it flows really out of that, the gospel's impact on how Christians relate to Christians in other churches. We see a glimpse of this. It's really just a glimpse, a practical example of it in the conclusion here. Sacrificial gospel partnership. That's the way to summarize it, how we are to interact with Christians a little bit further from us in our circles. 
It comes to bear in these remarks, verse 12, Paul says, As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, to Titus, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends me greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul tells Titus to soon meet him in a city in mainland Greece and that he is sending someone else. He's sending either Artemis or Tychicus, he's not sure yet, to replace Titus in Crete. Then Titus is instructed to care for two other gospel workers, Zenos and Apollos. We know a bit about Apollos from Acts. Uh, They may have been the ones who delivered Titus this letter. The implication seems to be that Titus is to ensure that the church in Crete abundantly meets the needs of Zenos and Apollos. Paul commends this as a good work, returning again to really his main preoccupation of the entire letter. Brothers and sisters, Christians in other congregations are extended family. We are to devote, that is to give ourselves fully toward caring for them as those opportunities arise. We have a primary obligation to our immediate family, just as we have in our biological families. As we saw in chapter 2, that's what chapter 2 was all about. Local churches, though, we aren't silos. We aren't silos oblivious to all other silos. We are outposts representing the same heavenly country. This is why we pray for other churches by name, with specific needs, every week in our prayer meetings and in our pastoral prayer. Brothers and sisters, gospel partnership isn't just a feel-good catchphrase. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It's a necessary good work that emerges from sound doctrine. We love one another in the same faith, as Paul says in verse 15. And this love, unlike the world's love, is cruciform. Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. That is our posture toward believers outside our local church. The gospel demands we meet their needs when we hear of them, as we're made aware of them, as we're able to do so. Paul's statement in verse 14, it's, it's for this context in particular, but it really summarizes the whole central thesis of the entire book of Titus, doesn't it? The Cretan Christians are to learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. It brings us right back to Titus 1.1. Paul's purpose of furthering the faith of the elect in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Brothers and sisters, God's repeated call for us in Titus is to devote ourselves to good works that emerge from sound gospel doctrine. Elders are on the front lines of teaching and of modeling this. And the gospel, though, it's for everyone. And it's to be modeled in this way by every Christian. And rightly understood, it's calling all of us to two mindsets. In the church, a mindset of discipling. We're not on solo journeys to a Christian enlightenment. We have been redeemed by Christ into a people. A people for his very own that he is purifying by his spirit. So we must see that as a necessary part of following Jesus is coming alongside other redeemed sinners and helping them follow Jesus. Number two, out of the church, as we're looking at today, Titus 3, humble self-denial. A posture of love and of kindness that reflects the mercy we've been shown in Christ. All arrogance and spiritual pride banished. 
never lifting ourselves above those whom God has placed in positions of authority, not drawing lines around those who are deserving of mercy and those who are not deserving of mercy as the world does, but recognizing that we are mere beggars showing other beggars where there is bread. And with that said, while we love our neighbors in this way, our faith rests not in fickle, foolish humanity. It won't be restored in it either, but in the God who does not lie. In Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, so that we might be ready to do whatever is good toward everyone. Grace be with you all. Amen.